This is Global Humanist Shop Talk. I'm M.L. Clark. In 1992, Francis Fukuyama published a very silly but also very popular book, The End of History, which made the overconfident claim that we had identified the height of human governance structures, liberal, democratic society, and that the recent, more widespread implementation of this design had essentially brought us to the end of history because of how much progress this system had yielded for the world. It was a silly thesis for a few reasons not least of which including how broadly he defined key terms for progress. But you can also understand why it had been written in the wake of the Berlin Wall coming down in 1989. What a moment of curious optimism for the world, filled with the promise of better unions between major world powers and a genuine peace on the global stage. He was also not wrong in one specific regard. There are indeed some moments in Western history that have the sense of an ending to them, certain eras that have locked us into certain ways of thinking and being. The end of history, though, is in this construction not something to be proud of, so much as something to resist. It's actually rather remarkable how much of our world today has been shaped by decisions made during World War II. And yet, on top of all the myths about Western values and heroism that the Allied countries spun for themselves out of that horror of a war, and on top of all the game-changing brutalities like proof of the Holocaust and the onset of the nuclear age, there was also one very strange gathering of economists in 1944, which is loaded with cultural myth-making potential because it has had such a wide-ranging impact on our world today. I'm talking, of course, about the Bretton Woods Conference, held in the Mountain Washington Hotel in New Hampshire over three weeks, the first major meeting of the world's economists and other financial analysts since the London Conference in 1933. The meeting was taking place, of course, in the middle of World War II, and it had been planned for two years because its 44 participants knew full well that Europe was going to need significant financial interventions to recover after the conflict. But it wasn't just the war that informed the activities at this United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference, as it was also known, even though the United Nations wouldn't be formalized as an institution until 1945. There was also the matter of the world's pretty terrible recent legacy of financial mismanagement, a little lost decade known as the Great Depression. Everything that these analysts gathered to do over those three weeks, they did with the heavy shadow of the Great Depression in the background, and fear of another after World War II had reached its bitter end on the horizon. There are so many stories about the formation of our modern financial world that can be traced back to that set of meetings. One, of course, involves the famous economist John Maynard Keynes and his dream of a common currency for the world, the Bancor, a blend of the words bank and or, French for gold. 
which was left in ruins because of a sneaky, last-minute move by Harry Dexter White, a U.S. citizen who thought that the U.S. dollar should replace gold as the world standard. I wish I could say that White's proposal beat Keynes's in a fair, open dialogue between all delegates at these events. But the fact is that a bunch of tired and heavily drinking, overworked men failed to notice when White made use of Keynes's absence from a technical committee meeting. Dennis Robertson, who took Keynes's place in those conversations, didn't realize that White wasn't just trying to be helpful when suggesting that their documents use the US dollar as an easy stand-in for clarity to help define what was meant by the gold convertible currency that Keynes had been dreaming up. Keynes at the time had been busy in meetings related to the development of the World Bank. In his absence, White had successfully snuck in the US dollar as the only other unit of exchange outside of gold that would be accepted as dues for the newly developed International Monetary Fund, or IMF, that was meant to change the financial shape of the world. And change it, they did. But with the US at the center of key decision-making and power brokerage, on a global financial scale. In three weeks, these delegates laid the groundwork for two critical organizations that wield tremendous power over the fortunes of developing nations today, and nations in crisis in particular. And history has indeed been stuck a little ever since, because while the World Bank and the IMF can point to specific crises in international contexts to support the idea that they have made a key positive difference, they also represent a way of organizing global finances that perpetuates inequalities and doesn't always serve even their primary stated goals in the process. In episode one, I asked us to reflect on the bizarre ways in which monetary values are set on individual human lives. Now we get into the heart of the financial question itself, because who gets to decide what makes intervention a worthwhile risk? when whole countries' economies are on the line. The IMF does, for better and for worse. And it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Chop Talk, and for six episodes, we're calculating what humans are worth to one another through a deep dive into global financing, the messy investment structures that simultaneously promise to improve human agency and routinely repeat the same colonial problems from past eras in the process. It's important to clarify the difference between these loftily named organizations, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund. They are both headquartered in Washington, D.C., so that they can work in close proximity toward complementary goals. The World Bank is actually five institutions, though, which together provide one of the world's largest sources of long-term funding and knowledge to developing countries. The makeup of these five institutions matters. 
Both the IBRD and the IDA work on direct financing as well as technical and policy assistance for the governments of developing countries. Why are there two of them? Because the IBRD is working with a different bracket of country in need, middle-income nations, along with poorer countries with a good enough credit history to invite different investment portfolios. Meanwhile, the IDA works with the world's poorest countries, the ones with the most volatile credit histories. So far, so good, right? Meanwhile, the three other organizations, IFC, MIGA, and ICSID, tackle the private industry in these nations. They provide financing, political risk insurance, and dispute settlement resources, all to help the private sector grow, which it's interesting, right? Because what this immediately creates is plenty of opportunities for developed countries to bypass sitting governments under the umbrella of societal uplift and deal directly with private sector actors, including non-governmental financial institutions in the region. This isn't immediately insidious, but it does clearly highlight that the World Bank has a certain way of thinking about the balance of power between private and public enterprise, between the free market and the state, that its actions invariably supports whenever its agents see fit to involve themselves in another country's affairs. Although, I should also add that if you want a good example of how the World Bank's choices can disadvantage local systems, I recommend popping back to Season 1's episode on the light bulb, or the humanist light source, which illustrated how a program endorsed by the World Bank tied any hope of bringing alternative energy into deprived parts of Africa into the development of a viable marketplace for related products. This is the equivalent of saying that they couldn't possibly light up African streets to provide more safety to citizens and more viable working hours to their lives, unless the World Bank and its private partners were first allowed to introduce streetlight stores into all the worst hit regions. And the International Monetary Fund is even more invasive, although that at least is by design. No deception here. The IMF's main goal is always ensuring the stability of the international monetary system, which runs on a delicate balance of exchange rates and international payment pathways that allow both governments and individual citizens to do business with others. As I noted in episode two, this all comes down to trust. Banks and other financial institutions need to have the utmost confidence in one another when agreeing to receive or deliver currency, especially across borders. The IMF works to improve that trust, or what it calls global monetary cooperation, by intervening where necessary when a member country has difficulty paying off its debts, and by monitoring the global economy to identify points of vulnerability before they become more full-blown financial disasters. All well and good to a point, except that the execution of these aims involves the IMF setting stringent conditions on its loans, which can amount to allowing the IMF to make extreme changes to government policy. And there too, the IMF has a very specific set of economic principles in mind, informed by the needs and perspectives of its most affluent member states, that do not always reflect the needs of citizens in other struggling nations. Three examples should flesh out the problem. 
The first comes from the turn of the 21st century when two major critiques of the IMF were released in close succession, before going on to write a popular book on the subject, The White Man's Burden, in 2006, William Easterly published a UN working paper, The Effect of International Monetary Fund and World Bank Programs on Poverty, that argued that IMF's structural adjustment policies had no direct effect on growth and that adjustment-based loans similarly did not benefit the poor in countries where they were implemented. Around the same time, Joseph Stieglitz, co-winner of the 2001 Nobel Economic Prize, published Globalization and Its Discontents, in which he criticized the IMF for overvaluing neoliberal policy in its approach to delivering aid to countries in crisis, believing too much in the imperfection of government and conversely too much in the perfection of the free market. These are all very dense details on the surface, but what they amount to in practice is much simpler. The IMF would routinely offer countries in crisis the funds they needed to stabilize international payments and credit standing, but only if local governments were willing to accept the IMF's austerity measures, policies expressly meant to limit what it deemed government excess, policies in turn that opened the country up to more private enterprises, both locally and from outside players looking to gain access to a given country's resources. This fell neatly into the IMF's ideas around growth, specifically GDP-based market-measured growth, being integral to the betterment of all citizens in a given country. And that's why Easterly's analysis hit so hard. What his data crunching seemed to show is that there wasn't a neat connection between the IMF's austerity measures with their attendant boost in private enterprise and an uptick in citizen well-being. What his numbers seem to show, rather, is that the poor especially fared better even during economic contraction in their countries when their governments didn't receive IMF loans with all these market-building transitions and exclusions factored in. Stieglitz simply took these facts to a more bombastic extreme, accusing the IMF of, quote, market fundamentalism, end quote, and in the process glossing over active, messy debates in the organization, as in the overarching field. Because, yes, the IMF certainly was favoring the development of private enterprise, but in part because governments were failing. There were no easy solutions with respect to which power brokers made the most sense to try to rebuild with in any situation where a nation's economy was coming undone. This heated argument came to a head in 2010 when some of the underlying assumptions surrounding the IMF's work were transformed by the existence of a serious economic crisis among one of its European member states, Greece. This was in the wake of a global recession, so we should of course have expected that developed countries would be hit alongside developing countries, but still, the IMF had long been seen as a financial crisis firefighter for the poor, who were clearly this way because their countries were by their very nature a political mess. For the same to happen to Greece, such that it needed a loans package with the same severe austerity-based restrictions placed on it by the IMF, was a situation that the world hadn't seen in a while. And then suddenly the world got to see in real time that austerity measures did not improve the country's economic contraction rate. 
Greek citizens voted no in a referendum in 2015 on whether to continue accepting the IMF's loans with all their conditions attached. Sadly, the government ignored the will of its people. Hey, money is money, right? And in 2018, the IMF itself expressed concern about Greece's ongoing untenable debt load. The point being that sometimes we only realize the damage done by a given policy when it happens somewhere close to home, because Greece's struggle with the IMF loan system was by no means unique. It's simply that when it happens in developing countries, there is far less international prominence given to the local impact of two rigid financial policies that gut government and push for private enterprise to take over. As Larry Elliott, economist for The Guardian, wrote in 2016 in defense of the IMF's actions around Greece, quote, the IMF's remedy has been straight out of the structural adjustment playbook. Reduce public spending, cut salaries and benefits, insist that state-owned enterprises return to the private sector, reduce minimum wages, and restrict collective bargaining, end quote. Granted, the IMF has indeed made some changes to its policies in recent years. It announced a debt relief program for certain countries, and it started including different benchmarks of success above and beyond basic GDP growth figures. It also promised that it would tailor its lending conditions to low-income countries to allow local governments to address poverty on different terms. But do these changes go far enough? Hardly. A 2018 review of its conditionality requirements still strongly recommended a significant overhaul, but many countries aren't waiting around for that transformation. They're looking to other governments to provide local funding that the IMF cannot or will not. Which brings us to the final messy case of El Salvador, a country in crisis that the IMF will not loan to in any significant manner while its dictator cleaves to his dreams of cryptocurrency. We'll discuss crypto more in episode 5, but it bears noting here that as much as the IMF has been seen as an intrusive force demanding too much power over local government in exchange for financial aid, a situation like El Salvador highlights the complexity of the tightrope that the IMF is walking whenever it tries to offer monetary relief to member countries. After all, the financial funds that the IMF is distributing to member countries in need don't fall from the sky. The IMF is always working with other member countries and potential investors to provide assistance packages at risk levels that its financial backers can tolerate. A case like El Salvador, which is determined to throw money at a financial system that is yet to provide the security and stability needed to be viable for a whole country's needs, places the IMF and other formal banking institutions in a difficult position. No one wants the El Salvadorian people to suffer for their leaders' poor choices, but it's difficult to get the country the aid it needs while those poor choices continue to shape state financial policy. What then can be done? How can we develop monetary pathways to people in need when major global funds are inevitably going to be driven by the political preferences of their investors? In episode 4, we'll look at one attempt to bypass this complex system of state-level financial interventions, and unfortunately, how the dream of microfinancing hasn't worked out much better in practice than many of the interventions of the IMF. Will there be light at the end of this disappointing historical tunnel? This chaos of competing economic policies on which the fate of so many human lives depends. Maybe not. 
Maybe the best we can do is outline the problem as it stands. But even that's a start, and a step, one hopes, to better investments down the line. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk with M.L. Clark. Maurizio Ferraz is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo, and all further credits for cited and referenced content can be found in attached episode notes. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon. You can also follow my work at Better Worlds Theory, a weekly newsletter, at mlclark.substack.com. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Be well, be kind, and seek justice where you can.